Richard Blissbrook here. We are live. You sit here today with none other than Mark Victor Hansen. Bob Proctor. This is Kendra Hall. Tanya Stringer. Jeff Canfield. Whit Jones. James Clear. Les Brown. People want to hear stories. I like getting stories out of my guests here. So thanks for joining us. Spencer Reese graduated from Colorado College with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Business Administration in 1982 and the Washington University School of Law in 1986. He began his legal career practicing environmental law and commercial litigation in Boise, Idaho. In 1992, Spencer joined the legal department of the direct selling company Melaleuca in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Four years later, Spencer re-entered private practice and has exclusively focused on representing direct selling businesses worldwide. Over the past 30 years, Spencer and his partners have advised over 2,500 direct selling businesses, ranging from startup entrepreneurs to leading direct sellers worldwide. Spencer is a member of the Utah, Idaho, Colorado, and Missouri bars. He is universally recognized as the foremost legal authority on direct selling law in the United States. He's the industry's most sought after speaker on direct selling legal topics, is an author of numerous direct selling law articles, and is a contributing author to Angela Moore's industry acclaimed book, Building a Successful Network Marketing Business. Spencer has also represented numerous direct sellers in regulatory actions brought by state attorneys generals and the Federal Trade Commission. Notable among these are the FTC versus Trek Alliance and the seminal decision in FTC versus Burn Lounge. Let's welcome Spencer Reese to the Authentic Networker broadcast. Hello, Spencer. Hey, Richard, how you doing? I'm great. Thank you for joining us. You bet. It's my pleasure. <laughs> I'm, ex I'm excited to introduce you to the platform of StreamYard. It's going to 10x your business. Good deal. I hope so. But so far, it's 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 been a rather uneventful or uh, inauspicious initiation. Let's put it that way. Hey, audience! Thank you all for waiting for Spencer to get his act together on Streamyard. <laughs> we appreciate your patience. Let me tell you a little bit about my friend Spencer Reese. He has been one hundred percent dedicated, full time for the last. 30 years, he and his partners, to representing only direct selling businesses, over 2,500 clients in the direct selling space for the last 30 years. He cut his teeth as corporate counsel for Melaleuca for a few years, and that had to be an amazing experience. And since then... <laughs> And since then, Spencer is, he's the preeminent guy. He represents the most big billion dollar legacy companies in our profession. There's some other awesome attorneys, Kevin Thompson, Kevin Grimes, um, rest in peace, Jeffrey Badner, uh, some wonderful legal minds in our profession. But the go-to guy for me is Spencer. I mean, he's he's like really into it. His daughter, Jessie, owns a network marketing company called Red Aspen, which is a darling in our profession. So Spencer's the real deal. And I asked Spencer to come on here today and talk to all of us in the network marketing community about the future of network marketing, the viability of our model. What can we do to stay out of trouble? What can we do to not be stupid? 
And um, what can we do to educate and appease the Federal Trade Commission and Tina and everybody else that can't stand us? How do we get our act together? What kind of product should we be representing? And how should we represent our income option responsibly? That's a lot I'm putting on you, Spencer. It's not unusual. That's the stuff I deal with every day. <laughs> so just off the top of your head, Spencer, give us like your feeling, the lay of the land. Um, what's the, you remember most of my audience are sales leaders, distributors, mm -hmm. up and coming, right? So let's not scare them to death with legalese. What's, what's the current... Uh, landscape look like in our profession from a legal standpoint? What are you seeing? What are you feeling? What are you hearing? Well, you know, Richard, I, I hate to not to scare everybody, but it's not pretty. It really <laughs> isn't. I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of, of action from the FTC and groups like consumer advocacy groups like TINA. And yep. it's been very knee -jerk a very knee-jerk reaction in many respects. And I, I hate to say it, but it is true. It is. Yes, that, that's true. So when you say action, what, what, what's actionable? What is, what is Tina all up in arms about? Well, I can tell you, I have some opinions on this and, and it, it's, it evolves in down to or devolves into what I call the ick factor. That is icky practices, which let's face it, does it, does it start with corporate or does it start with the field? I'm going to say it starts with corporate because that's what it, it designs the compensation plan. And people are going to do what they are paid to do rather exactly. than what they are, what they're told or to do or not to do. Um, exactly. you know, it's, it's very much a mixed message, but reps are told or they're paid to engage in icky, icky practices. And uh, that's the reality of the situation. And that's what Tina gets up in arms about. And that's what gets the FTC's attention. Well, let's define icky practices. What's an icky practice? An icky practice, the most common is going to be an income claim or an income representation. That is, people are, are lured or, or baited to come to, a, to join a company because of an income opportunity, income claims or income representations, when the reality is that that the incomes earned by most people are are rather paltry. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's help let's educate people, Spencer. Uh, what is a responsible? So obviously, the network marketing model is based on growing the sales force and selling the product. Two basic mm -hmm. functions: sell the product to consumers grow the sales force. Recruiting is not illegal, is it? No, it is definitely not illegal. It's, so if it's I want a recruit, component to our, our business. If Actually, I want to recruit three or four people a month, is that illegal? No. If no. I want to recruit three or 400 people frontline, is that illegal? It is not. If I want to build a sales force of 10,000 people, is that illegal? Certainly not. So... When it comes to the income option, what is a responsible way to speak about the opportunity? Well, the income option is, is you have to, first off, disclose to people, which the best way to do it is an IDS, an income disclosure statement that is put out by corporate. But right. you have to disclose to people what the generally expected income results will be. 
And, and that is, is where many, many companies and, and reps will hide the ball. They do yes. a better job at, at hiding the ball than they do at transparency, in right. my opinion. Yes. And so what we really need to do is ensure that there is transparency in, into the income opportunity. And that's what an, a good income disclosure statement will do. So can you give us some classic uh, language that an icky distributor would use to entice a prospect to sign up and build with them absent of the income disclosure agreement? So they're not showing it. They're not talking about it. What are they saying to a prospect that's out of bounds? It's it's the specific words are not the issue, Richard. It's it's the net impression that is left with the listener. That's what we really need to focus on. And that net impression is that, hey, join me in this program and, and you will become wealthy. And that's just that's just a rarity. Yes. So uh I'm gonna let me I'm gonna try something on you, Spencer, I don't think I've ever shared this with you. And I don't know what you're going to say. You may hate it. You may love it. You may tolerate it. I don't know. But um, here's an approach that I have used and taught, which I'm kind of fond of. Uh, because I am at heart a recruiter. <clears throat> now, I'm only a recruiter if I've got a product that'll back me up. And that's, that's why I'm, I'm a big fan of legacy companies. I I'm not interested in promises about a product or I'm only interested in for how many decades have people been using this product every month, month in, month out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out. I want proof that the value proposition of the product, the price versus what it actually does is legit and has legacy potential because I want to build something once I may manage it forever but I want to build something once that pays me forever. That's only going to happen if people use the product forever. Like, you know, Melaleuca, good example, right? <laughs> They've proven if you build a customer base, there's a large percentage of those people who are going to use that product decade in, decade out. That's legacy income. Mm -hmm. So if I got a product like that, that's a license to build an empire. Now, yeah, what, what you're saying, Richard, is, is, and I think that this is really critical, and that is somebody is going to join a program and be a bona fide end user consumer or customer if they, the reason they are buying the product is for the, the benefits and value of the product and not because of the income opportunity that's attached yeah. to it. Yeah, well, therein lies one of the, the uh, fine, subtle distinctions of a pyramid scheme, doesn't mm -hmm. it? <laughs> very, very true. Yeah. yeah, in the eyes of the FTC, if somebody is is buying a product simply because it gives them access or qualifies them to be active, to it gives them access to a compensation plan, that is not a bona fide end user consumer or, or a customer. Yeah. So the subtlety of that, Spencer, and I know you've spent decades parsing with this. You know, if I'm talking to a sales leader that's trying to justify their product and their income option. I, I have enough experience to see through it. I can see when the product is only there as window dressing for an income option. You take the income option away, nobody's paying that much money for that product every right. month. 
right? Yeah, we've all seen that nonsense. Yeah. I mean, I had a, a company come to me years ago and they, they wanted to sell a quote unquote business in a box. It was a briefcase with a bunch of vitamins in it. And I said, you're going to get your lunch handed to you by these companies that are really in the nutrition business. They know what they know this stuff. They have research scientists and full staff of them. And you're going to sell, try to sell a briefcase with a bottle of vitamins in it. You're no, well, there's no way you're going to live. And they yeah. didn't. They certainly right. did not. So when I'm talking to one of these sales leaders, the, the, the parsing of the, the, the gray area there is, you know, they will try to convince me, oh, this is an awesome, it's usually a service, you mm -hmm. know, some kind of platform there, you know, you're paying two or $300 a month for education right. or the ability to trade some crap. Um, you know, those are the worst ones, but people will, mm -hmm. you know, they'll make a case for, hey, this is legit. You know, this kind of product does exist in the universe and we're not overpriced. Of course, the only way to actually prove is to pull that compensation plan away and see how many people are still on the product. That's not practical. So my question is, how do you or how does the FTC or how does anybody prove that a product is just window dressing and not legit? That's well, a challenge, isn't it? It is a challenge. Yes, you're you're absolutely correct. And and what we have seen is what is the evidence that the FTC has relied on in the cases that they have brought to uh, to establish what essentially is amounts to inventory loading under the new definition or the definition of inventory loading that has existed since two thousand and six in the in the. Uh, um, on nutrition case, if you look at that definition since 2006, the definition, or excuse me, 1996, the definition has been uh, um, that that they are making uh, purchases. It does not have to do with quantities of merchandise, which is what many people think, but they're making purchases in order to qualify for compensation uh, without reselling the merchandise. And they're, they're making these purchases to qualify for recruitment-based bonuses without reselling the merchandise. And so that's the, what we have to look at. You know, first off, are they a recruitment-based bonus? And what's a recruitment-based bonus? Well, that's a bonus where somebody is earning because the compensation plan rewards them for making a purchase rather than making a purchase for the benefits of the product itself. And so how do you distinguish that? So if, you know, um, you know, you and I are both pretty familiar with the Vima case. And so a, mm -hmm. I think a case of Verve at Vima at the time was $177. And that was like, I don't remember, 24 or 36 cans of Verve. And there were tens of thousands of people on auto ship buying a case of Verve. Now, how do you decide whether they're buying a case of verb because they actually love that product versus they're just buying it to qualify for a check. Of course, one of the ways that I suggested BK do that is run a report of all the people that are buying $177 worth of product that aren't getting a check. Right. Uh, he didn't, he didn't have that evidence at trial, which cost him. Um, so how do we do that? How do you determine whether or not people are buying for a check or buying because they love the product? Well, first off, you look at the compensation plan. And if the compensation plan, which so many of them do, requires that somebody make a personal purchase in order to uh, to be active, 
that that's uh, the first heads up. The second element is, let's face it, most most companies are not so foolish as to that's what we call a pay to play in fact program. Most companies are not so foolish as to recognize a pay to play in fact program is illegal. So what they do is they make them pay to play in practice. That is, you don't have to personally purchase anything, but you can personally purchase something. And that personal purchase qualifies you for compensation. Now, a pay-to-play in practice program is more difficult to, to establish as a pyramid scheme, but they are nevertheless illegal. There are certain things that, that, that the FTC is going to look to as evidence. One is going to be, as you just mentioned, the price of the product. Is there a motive or a price point at which the, it just becomes absurd? You know, it's so expensive. And in right. Bina's case, you know, in BK, I mean, he promoted, let's face it, he promoted his, his auto ship program as, as, as uh, insurance, as an insurance policy for compensation. Here, get on auto ship and it'll just happen to meet your PV quota. And, <laughs> and so you're guaranteed a insurance or you're guaranteed, guaranteed an income. That's, that's of course, that's going to really hurt. Yeah. Historically, we've all done that for, mm -hmm. um, Maybe not recently, but you know, in the last thirty or forty years, that's like a great way to sell auto ship. Is hey, don't ever miss your commissions. Don't forget to order. Don't be a dollar short. Get on auto ship so you get paid. Right. Right. Which, that has been all, an issue. All gray area now. It's so, it's it's, uh, it's it's something that the FTC has gotten wise to, by the way, and and. Uh, it is some, it is a practice that has become endemic. I hate to say it, and I hate to see it, but it has been uh, a common practice and something that I would prefer not to happen. That is, you know, if if you want to have a legitimate company, the auto ship program should not equal the PV quota that that is necessary. I mean, that's going to be that's going to be evidence also of, of an illegal pyramid scheme. If if the PV quota just happens to be set right at at the P or if the auto ship amount just happens to be set at the PV quota, which you're going to find that is pretty common, actually. Yeah, yeah. I see some some smarter, bigger companies today put the auto ship at like 50 when the requirement is 100 to get paid. Right. right. That is better. that is wise. I suggest they do that. Um, let's see, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you something here. Let's see. We're gonna test you on technology here, Richard. Ah, watch this. <laughs> Can you see that? No, I can't. I just, I just see you and me. Oh, now, oh, wait a minute. Now I do. There you go. What do you think about this guy, Carl Greenwood, 20 years in prison for one coin? Yeah, that does not surprise me in the least. Um, it, I mean, it, you know, we, we do see criminal prosecutions occasionally, but, but the bigger concern has, for most companies, that which keeps them up at night has been, uh, um, you know, that, that they will, they will have their assets frozen. And, and that has, that has, the FTC has not been able to do that since 2021. Um, they lost a Supreme court case that took that ability to do that away. But my right. concern is that, you know, they're going to get that reversed. Well, here's another one. Uh, one of his sidekicks. She's still on the lamb. She's in hiding. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lousy way to have to live your life, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure.
So let's talk about some of those kinds of um, programs, uh, Spencer, because, you know, what's popular for the what I'll call the ignorant or stupid crowd in network marketing is even though they know better, they're smarter, um, they're still falling in mass for these programs that are crypto based or um you know, trading based, trading online based, and mm-hmm. um, you know, we've had like Omega Pro and you know all that Ponzi scheme and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that people invested in these three percent a month return programs. Mm-hmm. You know, invest a million dollars, make three million dollars in the next six months. Hundreds of millions of dollars got sucked into those Ponzi schemes. And the face of them was a network marketing company selling whatever trading platforms or something. Mm-hmm. Out yeah, of I mean, really you see these nonsense products or services that that you're you're absolutely correct. I, I I've never seen a crypto program that I've considered legitimate. They, I'm certainly there. Certainly, there are some that are out there, but I've yet to see that. Yeah, I haven't seen any either, but. Um... You know, it's. I suppose it's possible to create something, but generally, what these people are doing, especially if they base their company in Dubai or someplace, right. uh, they're looking to insulate themselves from uh, U.S. prosecution. Why? Because they know it's not totally legit. And mm-hmm. you know, I was gonna. I, I back a few minutes ago, I was gonna tell you a way that uh, I like to present the income option and see if it passed mustard with you. Um, so it goes like this. So Spencer, um, I'm showing you the income option, uh, the income disclosure mm-hmm. statement. I actually use it mm-hmm. as a tool for enrollment. Why? Well, because I want to teach and model compliance. And so one of the ways that I found to do that is to actually go overboard in compliance and use that psychology to be compliant, but also share upside and possibility. Because as a recruiter, if I'm selling you the product, well, what I need to do is I need to put the product in the best possible light, right? As If I'm selling you the product, uh, I'm not going to show you all the five-star reviews. And then, oh, by the way, before you decide to buy it, Spencer, let me show you all the one-star reviews and all the returns that we've had for this product, because I want to mm-hmm. be completely transparent. Right? Salespeople put the product in the best possible light, short of lying about it. Right. Representing it. Right. And so, you know, that's easy to do if you start making claims that are unsubstantiated or you start making therapeutic claims for a product that are unsubstantiated or non compliant. But it's a little bit more gray or messy for those of us that are teaching recruiting and we want to stay not we want to stay compliant so try this on tell me how you feel about this uh, i'm showing you the income disclosure agreement and so i show you the various income levels and i ask you spencer which one of these income levels what is the lowest monthly income level lowest, not highest. What is the lowest monthly income level that I'm showing here here on the income disclosure statement that would inspire you 
to want to spend some time partnering with me to build a business. Mm -hmm. Lowest monthly. And so let's say you say a thousand bucks a month. And so there's probably a rank attached to that in the compensation plan. And I don't know, let's call it silver or some rank. And so what I say to you is, well, to be transparent, Spencer, here's the percentage of people that have ever achieved that rank and earned that money. And let's say it's, you know, one half of 1%, which might be generous. It's probably Mm -hmm. more like one to whatever the percentage is. I'm going to show you the percentage in the income disclosure statement. And then I'm going to ask you this question. And this is the question I want you to vet for me. And the question is, as you can see, Spencer, uh, hardly anybody earns this money. Most people don't earn this money. Certainly average people in XYZ company don't earn this money. And my question for you is, are you exceptional or are you average? You know, and, and Richard, I will I will tell you that that is the, the approach that that Viva was using in BK, you know, but they they didn't uh, approach it in quite that, that those terms. You know, they they approached it. They would ask the question, are you average? And, and that that is is uh, I mean, by by pointing out to somebody that that there is only that there's maybe a half a percent of people that, that earn a thousand bucks a month or something. You're pointing out to them that that the chances are pretty slim that that they're going to earn that kind of income. So my my thought would be you simply leave it at that and don't ask them the follow up the next question. That would be my opinion. Which is why you're a lawyer and not a recruiter. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, one of the problems too is that is that. In network marketing, reps are taught to to sell the opportunity. They're not taught to sell the products. And my opinion, from what I've seen, is that most network marketing companies have no clue how to sell, teach someone how to sell the product. Consequently, we sell see people selling the income opportunity, and that is where the problems crop up. Yes, and I, and you know those are the companies I think that are on your radar. The companies mm-hmm. that I tend to coach and deal with are legacy companies um, where the products are proven. And actually the, the problem that I see Spencer way more often, like um, in legacy product-based companies is the sales force is really, really good at selling the product. Mm-hmm. And they have no clue how to sell the income option. No well, clue. I, now I, I've, I've seen the opposite, but, but that, is, that is probably because we come at this from different angles. Yes, you're That's you're dealing with problem children. Exactly. And I'm I'm coaching companies and sales leaders only in legacy companies. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't even I don't work with people that are in stupid companies because right. it's it's a it's a futile effort and I don't want my name associated with them. Mm-hmm. So very wise of you, Richard. Very wise of you. Thank you, sir. Um so hey, tell us about. Uh, you know, this could kind of an interesting experience. I'm not promoting your daughter's company, Red Aspen, uh, but I'm not opposed to people learning about it. But interesting kind of experiment, right? So your daughter wants to start a direct selling network marketing company, and she's got to ask her dad for 
advice and input, which you've obviously been very involved in coaching and helping her design her comp plan and her policies and her culture. How did you do that? What has she created? What is it about the daughter of the most prominent network marketing attorneys? What is it about her company that is designed to be here 50 years from now? How did you design it? You know, I didn't design it. I'll tell you what, my daughters, it's, it's, there's actually two of them and they work together. My one right. daughter, Jesse, is the CEO, and, and Jeannie, the younger of the two, is, is the chief visionary officer. Yeah, they're a powerful but, partnership. But uh, I mean, what it what it boils down to is I, you know, I gotta pat myself on the back for raising them the right way because they they are sincere about putting people first. And and that is what is going, and, and they're very sincere about their culture. Yes. And, and that is what's going to separate a, a, a legitimate company from a, a company that, that's gonna be a fly-by-night. Yeah, and they're also 90% product focused, right? They have mm-hmm. one of like a, a brilliant cycle on product development that you know they're cycling new products into the marketplace every you know. two weeks. It's yeah, insane. It's, it's crazy, right? That is that's a company that's focused on the consumer, what the consumer wants, the customization mm-hmm. for the consumer, the fast turnaround for the consumer, and and you know, that is the way that legitimate legacy network marketing companies build and survive is they make their product offering so compelling that customers of the product, raving fan uh, fans of the product, naturally it occurs to them, well, why not tell people about this product? And as soon as I'm telling people about the product, whether I'm doing it online, social media with a link or to my next door neighbor, Guess what? I just became a sales leader. Mm-hmm. Whether I define it that way or not, that's the, that's the difference between it. a customer doesn't tell the story, a sales leader tells the story. Yeah, so and and yeah, you, you you've hit on a key issue there, and one that I am keenly uh, keenly acute or knowledgeable of, and and that is is the question of leadership. I have strong opinions on who is a leader. Is it somebody who earns the most money or is it somebody, are there other qualities that you try to emulate that you want your What are they? What are those other qualities? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, ask yourself, that's going to differ depending on the culture of the company. And that's where the company's culture comes in is critically important. But, uh, you know, is, what are the qualities that, I mean, is somebody going to want to follow uh, somebody who is not, who's artificial? Of course not. I mean, nobody wants to follow somebody who's artificial. If somebody is only teaching about an income opportunity, are they going to want to follow that? I doubt it. Is somebody, is, is, is income really the, the key litmus test that is going to make somebody want to follow someone? Or are, are, are people going to follow a sincere person? I mean, right. I'm going to digress into politics for a moment. And we, we've seen that Donald yeah. Trump is one of the most divisive person that persons in or presidents in U.S. history. But there can be no doubt that he's a leader because he put his, his character into action. Now, certainly enough people disagreed with his character or how he exercised his character so that, that you know, he, he became so divisive. But I don't think you can can you can argue that he was not a leader because he's got a huge following. That's the definition of a leader. You got a following. 
You're yeah, a leader. exactly. You got a huge following. Exactly. I mean, you can you can love him or hate him, and I'm not going to go there. I'm not going into politics in that regard. But uh, but that is that is the question, and so it's it's a question of of, of for the for corporate to to come up with a a uh, what do they consider to be a leader? What are those qualities that they think that they want to be known for, that they want people to emulate, and right. that those are going to be their leaders. So Spencer, speaking of corporate, there's uh, I have a pretty good following of corporate people, mm -hmm. a variety of companies that may watch this. Um, one of the things I think is a little challenging for us as a profession is where does corporate go for education and guidance in terms of groups and events? What are you recommending these days as groups that are sincere, legitimate, focused? Where does corporate go to learn the real deal on how to craft a network marketing opportunity that is going to become legacy? Well, you know, you know, Richard, I'm going to beat your drum for a moment. I'm going to tell them to look at your podcast for sure. But but I mean, if, if somebody wants to, to look at a, a uh, legacy or become a legacy company, they have to uh, first off have I would I would say, look at your compensation plan. What are you paying people to do? Because, I mean, let's face it, like a, a, some plans grow notoriously quickly, but they are also do so at a high risk. Yeah. And so what what is your compensation plan paying people to do? Are you telling them to do something different? Because if you have that, if they're receiving that mixed message, guess which one is going to win the income right. opportunity by by a landslide. People are going to do what they are paid to do rather than what they're told to do or not to do. Totally. And so start with your compensation plan and, and look and see what you're actually paying people to do because yes, that's what they're going to do. If your rhetoric is, we're customer centric. We're all about the customer. We're all about customer acquisition. We're all about retention. Show me the percentage of your compensation plan that pays me to do that mm -hmm. versus the part that pays me to build a sales force. You are spot on, Richard. I mean, because, and, and most companies will not disclose that information. As you well know, they're very loath to, uh, to be tra that transparent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not, e it's, it's pretty easy for you and I to look at a comp plan and say, well, this, this mm -hmm. is the money that's going to customer acquisition. And this is the money that's going to build a sales force. And, and as a network marketing <clears throat> sales force building person, I can make the case for the best, the way to get the most customers is build the biggest sales force. And, right. and I, I believe in that 100%. But at the same time, most of the people, 95 to 99% of the people in any network marketing company, they're never going to build a sales force. And, and yet, if we would make it worth their while, they might acquire a customer every once in a while. But if we don't make it worth their while, they never will. That is entirely true. And, it is, you know, I, I work with I don't work with legacy companies nearly as much as you do, 
but uh, I work with the problem children, as you have you uh, in, indicated. But uh, and I see that constantly. I mean, let's let's take Coca Cola as, as an example. Would Coca Cola want everybody to be the distributor? Of course not. No. They they like their customers. They're good for business, and they they've they, they've learned that uh, you know if if everybody's a distributor, you got no business. But you know, but how many people drink a Coke a day? A lot of people. I mean, those customers are very, very good for business. So that's an interesting point, Spencer. How do we how do we parse out? Um, you know, just you go back twenty or thirty years. I'm sure I'm guilty of saying it. Like, uh, what's wrong with everybody being a distributor? Which is exactly what you said. We don't want to do, but parse it out. What is wrong with everybody being a distributor? What if everyone was a distributor? Because distributors are actually the best customers. Mm -hmm. Is that anywhere illegal? Like, no, is there any federal law that defines what is your customer distributor ratio? No, there's not one. And and it comes down to, and you're, you're absolutely correct. A, a distributor can be a customer. But but the question is, why are they buying? Are they buying because there's financial incentives built into a compensation plan? Or are they buying because of the benefits and value of the product itself? And that, yeah. I think, is what your distinction is going to be. That's right. going to be critically important. Are they being paid to uh, to buy the product or are they buying the product of their own volition? Right. And and then I think the real challenging part is how do we how do we define that? How do we tell that? How do we objectively um you know in data distinguish that versus it's just lives in a conversation i'm you know my people all buy it because they love the product versus the ftc saying no your people are all buying it to get a check who's right well the, again i can only go to back to the evidence that the ftc has used and, and by the way the ftc is very careful about picking the cases they choose to bring because they're going to bring the cases against the worst of the worst Right. That's why they prevail so often. Yeah, they don't want to lose. Them. But, but uh, I mean, the evidence that they rely on is, is the, as you indicated, the data. What, what percentage of people personally purchase their, their PV quota? And, and that, that's typically a very, very high percentage, like 90 plus percent. Right. And, and uh, again, what is what is that percentage? And again, what is the price of the product? Are they buying it? Would anybody in their right mind buy a, a briefcase full of, of vitamins, by the way, that that, you know, the, the company has the R&D of, of nothing compared to a an R&D of something like a USANA, for example, that has an expensive R&D program? Right. Or you could go back to Dare to be Great, where I buy a mm -hmm. briefcase full of audio cassettes for five thousand dollars <laughs> yeah you can that's exactly right right yeah so um tell me this um what do you see for the future of our profession do you see as you like lump it all together do you see that um the network marketing direct selling call it whatever you want to call it and and I think the distinction that I always want to keep in my definition is, you know, you could be a direct selling company and never allow recruiting or at least mm -hmm. beyond first generation. Uh, so when I say network marketing, I mean, 
that I have the ability to recruit people who recruit people who recruit people who recruit people. Mm -hmm. That's my definition of network marketing. What do you see for that in the future, the next 10 or 20 years? And I, I, I get it's going to be challenging and we need to clean up our act as a profession. Where do you see that happening? Where do you see the act getting cleaned up or do you not see it getting cleaned up? Well, I, I frankly, I do see it getting cleaned up, but it's, it's going to be a matter of pulling teeth. I, I hate to say it this way, but, but uh, we have to make some changes. We yeah. have to become more product centric because if, if not, we're going to get it shoved down our throats, just like, like uh, Advocare did. Right. And we all yeah. know that that then did not well for, for industry. Yeah. Or if a company's faced with a $200 million fine, mm -hmm. unless they're Herbalife, yeah. they're and likely it, to just go to the affiliate program. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that we're going to see some distinct changes in affiliate programs because let's face it, influencers are have become the model. And and we've seen companies that have focused on influencers, but let's let's face reality that influencers, they are a different breed. They're not your typical distributor. They're not interested in building a business. Right. They like they like to receive a commission for something they introduce online. And right. that has been uh, a real focus of, of direct selling. Or of, and, and that's that, that uh, you, you raised the question of network marketing versus direct selling. I actually preferred the term peer-to-peer -peer marketing because direct selling, I think, is a misnomer. And network marketing, I think, is a misnomer. It, it indicates that people, people uh, sell within a network or, or recruit within their own network of people. That has not been the case since the certainly since the internet has become an issue or, or ubiquitous. It, people people will recruit and and sell to their peers, and their peers are anybody who's online. Consequently, yes, you define that business. is different than my network. So if I have people that are online that are connected with me somehow, and they're in a group or they're on a Facebook page or you don't define that as my network, you define that as peers? Yes, that's correct. I mean, again, we're talking semantics here, but yeah. but I, I view it as peer-to-peer -peer marketing as opposed to network marketing. Do you think you're gonna change the name of our profession? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, let's face it. I mean, my website is mlmlaw.com and we're certainly not in that. But, but uh, um, you know, that's a compensation format. But but yeah. let's face it, we're you know we're not going to be lucky enough to to or in, have that kind of influence to to make a change that dramatic. What do you think the impact is, Spencer? I I know you and I have been in some meetings where we talked about this. What do you think the impact is as companies embrace, for example, the influencer program? And one of the things that is distinct with influencers from traditional network marketers is influencers sell. 20 different companies' products, mm -hmm. they don't have any loyalty or exclusivity to a company. There is no idea of, you know, don't try to ride two horses. Influencers are riding 20 horses. Right, right. And, That's been a big, big issue. And, yeah. and because net, you're right, network marketing companies have been 
keen to to apply non-solicitation provisions. They want that exclusivity. Right. But, but influencers, they will not stand for that. That's one right. of the big distinctions. And so, in my opinion, we're going to see a the uh, the uh, non non solicitation provisions fall by the wayside as as the influencers become more and more ubiquitous, and and their their influences is start to felt within the direct selling space. Yeah, and then I see uh, as an extrapolation of that a problem that maybe not everybody sees if they haven't been there in the trenches. But I know you've been in a lot of litigation like this, so. If my company brings influencers in and they create a comp for influencers and all of a sudden these influencers are promoting whatever they want, right? My team, generations below me, they see one of my company's influencers who's probably being promoted by the company as the number one enroller, the number one seller, the, you know, the darling of the company because of their volume and their customer acquisition. So my team, second generation, third generation, they see that person get promoted, get edified as a star. And they so they start to follow them and they see, oh, well, she's promoting this skincare over here, which could be a network marketing skincare. It could be anything, right? Mm-hmm. And so somebody on my second or third generation, they say, oh, well, maybe, maybe I want to, promote that skincare. And, you know, I imagine a lot of products that influencers are promoting, they also have the opportunity to enroll people. They do. And so all of a sudden, my second generation ends up in the first generation of one of the influencers who's not on my team. And so my second generation starts promoting that product to my team. And I'm only talking about one product. So if there's 500 influencers in my company, I can have 500 new competitive genealogies, very nasty, wicked web of cross-line recruiting. Have you anticipated that? I I I have not seen that situation crop up, but I suspect it will. It will. I, have, I have anticipated, I do anticipate it, but, yeah. but the question is going to be what is, what is more important to the company? Is it the benefit of that having that influencer with, with his or her 10,000 customers, or is it the benefit of having the exclusivity? I mean, that, that's a corporate position that, that it depends on every company is going to come down differently on that. I've seen some companies that are very focused on the influencer model. And others that that you know, for example, my previous employer is one of the most notorious in terms of uh, of <laughs> wanting to have uh, exclusivity and insisting on it. And they've 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 successfully garnered that model. And uh, they're quite litigious in their strategy. Yeah. Very <laughs> even, very true. Even to the extent of changing the laws of Idaho, right? <laughs> it has done that. They have. He yes, he did. <laughs> So there you go. There's old school versus new school. Okay. The last thing I want to ask you about Spencer, and I'll let you go. Cause I know you, you know, you're high dollar and you charge by the 15 minute mark. So six uh, minutes, but that's nothing, nothing unusual. Really. Six minutes. Six minutes. Yeah. Six minutes. Okay. Last question. One of the big topics 
a lot of top leaders are all up in arms about this as they should be. I don't know what anybody's ever going to do about it, but um, the policies and procedures of companies over the last 20 years have uh, sleight of hand almost evolved to where, first of all, they're so lengthy, nobody ever mm-hmm. reads them. Fact, interesting data. What percentage of network marketers read the policies and procedures? And I think the answer would be none until they're faced with litigation. <laughs> right, right. They're, they don't read them until until they want to get around them. And even then, they don't read them. They have their lawyer read them. Right. But that's and a different issue. So the, the challenge is that sales leaders today look at the oppressive uh, one-sided policies and procedures from their point of view. I, I actually have a balanced point of view being sales leader for decades, but also a company owner for decades. And I certainly understand why the company wants those policies and procedures to cover them. Um, and, you know, I don't know, maybe you have an opinion about who's usually the person that tries to take advantage of the other. Is it the sales leader or is it the company that tries to take advantage of the sales leader. But historically, it's the company that has come out on top because the policies mm-hmm. and procedures are oppressive and one-sided. And so what do you have to say about that? Because I imagine you've just, you've written some of those. You I have speak. written some of them. In fact, <laughs> I've gotten away from the 40, 40 plus page documents. And and I because let's face reality, I mean, business today is done on, on a three and a, or a four inch cell phone or smartphone screen. I mean, yeah. is it reasonable to expect somebody to read a 40-page document or 45-page document on a three-and-a-half-inch screen? Of course not. No. That's silly. And we know, but so I've tried to pare it down to, I'm, I'm down to like 13 or 14 pages, but that's still much too long. Yeah. But that's but the reality great. is they, they have to be that long to include everything that we, we, we want to put in them. And so what do you so, have to say to the sales leader who says, well, what about our rights? What about policies that protect us? What about we spend seven years building a multi-million dollar business and somebody looks at that and says, wow, that that 50 grand a month will do nicely over here on my bottom line. Mm-hmm. Let me figure out how to terminate this person. What do you say to them? You know, the policies are going to be terribly one-sided. They always are. Let's face it. The uh, corporate pays for those, and they want them to be one-sided. And and so what do you say to somebody who has spent that much time? Well, you have to look to your common law rights, which they do exist. What uh, are they? But, but, but that's where you end up looking because the policies are terribly one-sided. You're contracting. What are common law rights? Your common law rights are the rights that that uh, that the courts have decided, or cases the courts have decided. Is the and you're mainly going to look at wrongful termination as as a case. And you where know, would people where would people study that? Where would they find case law and precedents for wrongful termination? You know, you'd have to be a lawyer. I hate to say it this way, but but the reality is, you got to be a lawyer to to or have access to or know where to look for that stuff and have access to a Westlar or a Nexus situation, right. because yep. it's just not available to the general public unless you know how to find it. So when people feel like they're either going to be wronged or they might be wronged or they have been wronged, regardless of what the policies and procedures say. 
where you would suggest they look is their common law rights, precedents, case law, mm -hmm. and use an attorney to do that. That is true. And, and I'll tell you, you know, I'll be real frank, Richard. I mean, legal work is very, very expensive. And even the yeah. best paid distributors rarely have the wherewithal to cover that kind of an expense. I mean, let's, uh, I'll be real blunt. That is distributors are notoriously bad at paying their legal bills. That's why you'll find that uh, most lawyers, myself included, uh, we represent corporate because corporate is, is good at paying their legal fees, whereas uh, the distributors are not. Yeah. All right. That's a good point. Um, <clears throat> so last question about that, and we'll wrap this up. There's a movement, maybe it's a tiny movement. There's a movement underfoot for um, there, there, there's like a, uh, a call out for companies to design policies and procedures that, you know, can be on one page and they're distributor friendly. I know mm -hmm. of one company that might have pulled that off. I don't know if they'll end up regretting it. <laughs> I don't Do know you, if it's, I mean, what do they use, tiny font? I would love to see what they've done. I really would. If you could send me a link later, that sure. would be fantastic. I'll do that. Um, and so, but what do you think about that movement? Do you think that will ever get traction? Do you think the companies that create distributor-friendly policies and procedures will grow as a result because people are going to be looking for that? Or do you think they'll regret it? I don't think that they're going to grow because of that. I mean, let's face it. People right now, they don't read this stuff. I mean, no. When was the last time you read your, your own insurance policy? I, I know I haven't. If I see something online, I just click, I agree. Yeah. But, and that's what I think most people do. But uh, so I don't see that, that that's going to be a major impact or a major factor in, in, in determining whether somebody joins a program or not. I do yeah. know, however, that I would like to see them pared down to a page or less, because as I've indicated, you know, the, the reality is that the smartphones govern the market. Everybody does business on their smartphones now. And, and is it reasonable to expect somebody to be able to read a 40 or 45 page or even a 13 page policy document on a four and a half inch touch screen? I don't think so. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to send you two sets, one from a current company and one from um, my old company that may inspire you to look for. I would revenue. like to look at those very much because I, you know, I've tried, I've looked at the stuff that I I've put together and, and I have really, really pared it down from 40, 45 pages to uh, 13. And, yeah, well, and I uh, think, you know, even with 13, 13 pages, if you try to get it down to one page, you're going to leave a lot of stuff out that you're going to end up. Exactly. Exactly. So. You know, but, Basically. but, I, I still, I just don't think it reasonable to try to get to to expect people to read that much content. Yeah, and you know, ninety nine point nine percent of every distributor that joins the company isn't even going to ask about the policies and procedures before well, they yeah. join. So, not really a selling point unless you're a top leader looking for a new home. Then it might be a selling point. But hey, that's true. I mean, there's We're at almost an discussion. hour, Spencer. So, geez, I, I probably got like $2,500 worth of your wisdom for nothing. Well, Thank I'm you. happy to do it, Richard. I really am. It's always such a pleasure to visit with you. It really, well, I, really is. 
Thank you, sir. I appreciate your friendship and your mentorship and your colleagueship. We've we've worked together and uh, brainstormed and supported each other for decades. And I see our profession as having a bright future, not without us changing and evolving. And uh, as Jim Rohn said very wisely, don't wish for things to be easier. Wish for us to be better. Mm-hmm. And that's our challenge. We need to get smarter. We need to get wiser. We need to get more professional. Um, and we need to think long term because and that is key. Long term is is key. And it's not wishful thinking. It's 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 leadership. It's yep. taking action on 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 our character. Yep. And that is going to be our character. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate you immensely. I look forward to seeing you at our next event somewhere down the road. And um, best wishes continued for Red Aspen to be a role model in our profession and you for leading the way legally. Thank you for joining us on the Authentic Networker podcast. Spencer you Reese. It's been my pleasure. And I'm sorry I'm a technophobe or a techno nerd. I, I, I just don't get it. It's you it's did wonderful. just fine. You did just fine. MLMlaw.com. Check it out, folks. Yeah, just don't go there for your technology needs because you will not get it. <laughs> over here, Spencer. We're over here. Look over here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Take care. Hey, gang, thanks for joining us. You can share this with anybody you want to check it out. Have a great day. I'll see you back here at noon Hawaii time with Brian Byrow.